General James C. McConville is the 40th Chief of Staff of the United States Army, filling a critical position for our nation once occupied by individuals such as General John J. Pershing, Douglas MacArthur, George Marshall, Dwight Eisenhower, and Omar Bradley. A West Point graduate, soldier, leader, and aviator, General McConville has commanded the famous 101st Airborne Division Air Assault and led in combat, including in Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, as Army Chief of Staff, his job is to ensure our soldiers have the training and equipment they need to accomplish their missions and return home safely. In this position, he's also a member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, helping to advise some of our nation's senior civilian leaders on vital national security decisions. General McConville sat down with me, Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of FTD's Center on Military and Political Power, filling in for host Cliff May, just days after the one-year anniversary of Putin's unprovoked large-scale invasion of Ukraine, amidst reports of Beijing considering the provision of lethal aid to Moscow for use against Ukrainians. I asked General McConville about the war in Ukraine. How is it going and what are the stakes for Americans? We discussed how to strengthen the U.S. defense industrial base. We also discussed the nature of the threat from China and what the Army is doing to deter aggression in the Indo-Pacific and elsewhere. I also asked him for an update on the Army's ongoing modernization efforts, the most significant the service has conducted in four decades, and one that will determine whether Americans can prevail on future battlefields. We're so pleased you've decided to join the conversation, too, here on Foreign Policy. McConville, it's uh, such a real pleasure to uh, sit down with you again, to see you again, and I'm really excited for our conversation. Well, it's great to be here with you, Brad. Thank you. Thanks for your service, you and your family, and and thanks to all the men and women that you lead uh, to defend our country. Uh, There's so much we can talk about in so little time. I'm like a kid in a candy store, but uh, with your permission, let's just jump in. Um, And as I often do, I like to kind of start with threats. Uh, You know, uh, you you start in strategies, you know, brother, you start with interests and threats to those interests. So maybe we could start there, um, kind of call it the uh, the headache portion here. And let's begin with Russia. You know, last um, last week was the one year anniversary of of Putin's uh, unprovoked large-scale invasion of Ukraine. And I'm just interested in um, what your assessment is of the situation on the ground in Ukraine. Well, first of all, um, you know, it was an unprovoked attack uh, on a sovereign country of Ukraine, which we we all know. And uh, this is one of the largest large-scale combat operations, uh, you know, some would argue that we've seen uh, since World War II. It's a very uh, bloody uh, battle. Uh, lots of civilians are, are being killed. But but having said that, I'm, I'm watching the Ukrainians um, build their capabilities, their capacity, their competence. And what's really amazing is their will to fight. No, I, exactly right. I, I was uh, I did an interview February 25th last year, one day after it started. And I went back and I was looking at my comments to see what I got right, what I got wrong. And like a lot of folks, I think I, I overestimated some of the Russian military capabilities. But one thing I said is that, you know, don't underestimate the determination of a free people to defend their homes against an unprovoked invasion. And I think that is one of the, the remarks I made at the time that, it, that has been borne out. It's just, uh, I'm you know, just from my, my, the safety and security here of the United States, I'm just so impressed by the agility and bravery and determination of the people of Ukraine. Um, how, you know, without getting into any of the politics, that's not my goal at all, but just generally speaking, what is your sense for of regarding the stakes for Americans in Ukraine? What, what's on the line there, would you say? Well, well first of all, when I, when, I, when I take a look at um, uh, this conflict, it's a regional conflict, but it really has global implications. You know, as I talk to many of my colleagues, chiefs of staffs of armies around the world, 
it's impacted their countries. Um, it's impacted their food security. It's impacted their energy security. And I think the whole world uh, is 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 in in some ways being affected uh, by this conflict. And I think that's why a lot of you know freedom loving people are coming together and really calling for a halt or supporting the Ukrainians in their battle against this unprovoked attack. Yeah, no, it's a great point. And, and the UN General Assembly had a vote uh, a few days back where they, uh, I, I think it was some 141 nations voted to condemn the attack and a small uh, kind of uh, list of countries, uh, not a really club I'd want to be in, uh, voted against it. I think it was five or seven or something like that. And then some countries abstained. But to me, it just really shows how isolated uh, Putin is be, uh, because of his own behavior and what he's done. Um, Interested in any general thoughts you have on the U.S. security assistance that the U.S. has provided to Ukraine. As some of the listeners may know, it's come in two different forms. It's come in the form of uh, presidential drawdown authority, where we uh, we take uh, weapons from our own stocks and send those more quickly. And then also a, a, another vehicle by which we work with industry to contract for things which are sent there later. It, how how do you assess the uh, security assistance that we provided Ukraine? Well, I think when uh, that we've provided a lot of security assistance, and it's come in the ways of really many means. You know, first of all, weapon system. We saw early on the value of javelins and stingers in, in the defense. And as we've moved uh, further into the conflict, we've seen the value of long-range uh, precision fires, you know, from triple sevens uh, to to high Mars and, and certainly additional quests for that. And, and we're seeing a request now for more combined arms uh, capability, you know, Bradleys and Strikers and Leopards and, and, and tanks and those type things. And 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 the other thing that we've been providing uh, as a, a team, and when I talk about the team, I'm talking about NATO and really uh, many other countries around the world, is it's one thing to provide the weapon systems, but you also have to provide the logistics and the sustainment and training that goes along with that. And, and we're seeing that play out as we speak. Uh, the Ukrainian soldiers are very committed to defend their country. And the tr- they are very quick learners. Uh, they come out and get the training and they go right back in and they are very focused on defending their country. Yeah, that's great. And you mentioned the triple sevens that for the listeners that, you know, that's the 155 mil- or millimeter howitzers, the 105 millimeter howitzers, the high Mars, the high mobility artillery rocket systems uh, that fire the, 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 the Gimlers or guided multiple launch rocket system missiles. Bradley strikers, you mentioned the Leopard. Of course, that's the German origin tank, the Leopard One and Leopard Twos. Um, and as you know well, uh, based on uh, your 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 distinguished career, that uh, you know the the much uh, the much uh, trumpeted end of land warfare and the end of uh, the, the relevance of tanks and armored personnel carriers is uh, seems to be in a, a bit premature. It seems with the Ukrainians calling for tanks and armored personnel carriers. Well, I, I like to say you don't need armor unless you want to win, and, <laughs> and I right. think in this case, Ukrainians are very. Uh, committed to uh, winning, and but you, you win by combined arms. Exactly, and you don't want to just have. You, you never want to present uh, an, an adversary uh, just one dilemma. You want multiple d- dilemmas, and, and I think that's what the um, you know, the Ukrainians are doing extremely well. I think the chair of our, our Center on Military and Political Power here, uh, Lieutenant General Retired H.R. McMaster, would agree with you on the continued relevance of armored warfare. And 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 you know this, but some of the listeners may not. You know, we had the in the initial weeks of the war, we had the Russians that sent that long convoy of tanks and armored personnel carriers from the north. Those basically sitting ducks. And then some people looked at, oh, look at that. You know, the days of tanks are over. Well, the point there is they weren't supported by in a combined arms way. Uh, and, and, and as you said, you use the term combined arms. When you integrate the infantry, there are 
artillery, the armored forces, the air defense, and aviation, and synchronize them to have coordinated effects at a particular time and place, that's effective warfare. Yeah. And it was a, a second point, a second factor, I think, in that, you know, one of the things that, you know, at certainly at the higher levels you learn is that, you know, they, we tend to say amateurs study tactics and professionals study logistics. And, you know, tanks don't run very well if you don't have gas right, and right. if they don't run very well right, if you don't have World parts and, and if yes. you don't have ammunition they don't shoot very well so all those uh logistics all that logistics support is extremely uh important in in having a large combat formation for sure. Um, and, and when we talk about training the Ukrainians, right, right, it's about training them how to operate the systems, but also to maintain them, which is, e- which is easier said than done, right? Yeah. Any other broad lessons or implications that you see from the situation in Ukraine for the U.S. Army? Well, yeah, I, I see a lot, you know, and, and, and one of the, the um, capabilities we have is we have the world's greatest non-commissioned officer corps, which are our sergeants and for the listeners. And, 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 and those are the, the, the junior leaders that allow us uh, to conduct the type of operations uh, we need to conduct. When you're doing large-scale combat operations, especially in a very lethal environment, you have to operate dispersed. You have to re- operate in, in smaller um, type organizations. And, you know, when things go bad, junior leaders need to be the be able to take over in, in, in leadership. And if you're going to have a complex plan, uh, like the Russians did, um, having a non-commissioned officer corps or junior leaders that can execute that mission is extremely uh, important. And we've seen that. We've seen the value of um, long-range precision fires, uh, you know, and um, y- you can see the Ukrainians using them uh, very effective. Um, if, if you uh, mass organizations or you have command posts that are emitting or logistics um, 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 capabilities that are in the open, uh, there's a good chance it's going to be targeting. So all those are playing into this capability. And one final thing that we found is having posture in theater. We were able to uh, get our armored brigade combat team, uh, which is a very large formation, over to Europe, out of Savannah, in about seven days. And that's because we had invested and uh, the United States uh, Congress had given us the resources so that we could have uh, tanks and Bradleys and artillery forward in Europe. And we were, we were able quickly to draw that equipment and then use it and get it into our hands of our soldiers. And that gives us speed and response and reassuring our allies and partners in Eastern Europe. So that was the first, if I'm not mistaken, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that was the first armored brigade combat team from the 3rd Infantry Division. It was. And so we got that from Georgia, just to re- re- footstomp what I heard you just say, from Georgia to Europe in one week. That's, that's correct. That's amazing. That's right. But, but the, you know, the secret, if you will, was the equipment was already there. It was highly maintained. It was modernized. And then the logisticians were able to move it very quickly to uh, the place where they need to conduct operations. All right. Well, we'll come back to some of that, but just wanted to move to China. As you'll know well, the, uh, the, the Biden administration's national security strategy, the national defense strategy really focuses on China as the pacing challenge, I think is the phrase. I'm interested in how you as the Army Chief of Staff see the threat from the People's Liberation Army. Well, I, I think you, you, you called it exactly right. The National Defense Strategy calls it a pacing challenge, and I think they chose those uh, words very carefully. Uh, I think, um, like us, I think China shares um, the advantages of having a global economy uh, where we can trade freely, and I think any type of 
uh, conflict or any type of unprovoked attack on a, another sovereign, um, you know, uh, place can result in uh, serious ramifications for uh, whoever does that, but also for the rest of the world. So I think it's in all of our interests uh, to make sure we avoid any type of uh, regional conflicts. Yeah, for sure. Now, it seems to me just perhaps at at risk of simplifying too much that if we look at, uh, you know, having peace and prosperity and security in this century, it's going to, a lot of it's going to come down to the relationship between China and the United States. And as the importance of the Indo-Pacific economically and diplomatically seems to grow, um, just making sure that, uh, uh, that leaders and military planners never arrive at the conclusion where they believe they can accomplish their political objectives with unprovoked military aggression. And, um, and that seems to be the essence of what you're, you're busy doing there in the Indo-Pacific is creating dilemmas for people that are contemplating aggression. Well, you know, I go back to uh, President Reagan who spoke at my college graduation yeah. at West Point in 1981. He talked about peace through strength. And I think that philosophy kind of comes through today where – um, having, you know, a strong military, having a strong army, having strong allies and partners who share the, the same interests is extremely Im- important in, in maintaining, you know, a free and open Indo-Pacific and, and having stability and security so people can, uh, you know, have prosperity in their lives. So I think there's something to that. Well, I, I, you know, we've talked, we've touched on Russia a bit. We've touched on China here, there quickly. Um, just want to kind of round out with uh, just quick, uh, Iran, North Korea terrorism, the other kind of, you know, the big five, if you will, in the NDS in terms of threats we confront. Um, you know, so even as we focus much of the news and, and, many, and many folks like us focus on the situations in Europe and Indo Pacific, we still, of course, whether we like it or not, have persistent threats in the Middle East. Uh, we see Russia continuing to play a generally unhelpful role, I would say, in the region. We see Iran deepening its security and economic cooperation with China. Uh, you know, they, they codified a new agreement a couple of years back that uh, had some disturbing elements, I would say. Um, and and I think a lot of Americans may not be fully aware of the continuing role of the U.S. Army in, in, in the Central Command Area of Responsibility. Yeah, we may not have, you know, 100,000 troops in Afghanistan. We may not have 170,000 in Iraq, the numbers at, at the relative peaks in those two conflicts. But we still have a lot of folks there doing very important work. Anything you'd like to say about the role, of the continued role of the U.S. Army in the Central Command. Yeah, I think I think what we're doing is, and you kind of mentioned it, is you know we're reassuring our allies and partners, we're building their capacity, their capabilities, uh, their competence, and so they can defend their countries. Because as you said, the violent extremist threat has not gone away. Right. You know, Iran, um, North Korea, and the violent extremists that are really throughout uh, you know the, the globe have not gone away. And the, and the best way to you know deter them or or stop them is is build our allies and partners capacity and capabilities and that's what we're doing around the world it's a smaller number of forces but those forces are actually you know in in harm's way at time but but they're doing an incredible job uh, for us all and uh, having them there is really making a difference such an important point and and uh, you know uh, um, but some of the listeners again may not you, you know we maintain a, a relatively small but important posture still in Iraq and Syria and if I'm not mistaken a lot of those are soldiers a lot of those individuals are soldiers. And um, it seems to me that uh, we're getting huge bang for the buck, if you will, from that that forward posture, because by working with partners in Syria, we're helping pr- 
prevent the return of an ISIS caliphate, right? That would require us to send tens of thousands more troops back if that were to happen. And in Iraq, we're helping to enable our Iraqi partners to secure the sovereignty and territorial integrity of Iraq. I mean, do, do I have that about right? Or? No, I think yeah, I think you said I think that's well said, and I think uh, you know again, our, our you know if we want to. Um, have influence, we, we need to have presence. And if we want to react, we need to have access. And so they all come together. And I think we're seeing that play out. And, you know, our soldiers uh, will support whatever the national security uh, priorities are. And uh, those decisions on how long we stay and how much we stay with will be made by our policymakers. Thank you. And then just rounding it out, North Korea, um, you know, it's, with, there's so many, so many things on the, uh, call them challenge or threat radar, uh, you know, but we can't forget uh, Pyongyang and North Korea. Um, uh, the, uh, you know, as we're talking, and I'm asking, I guess, this question, in the context of, you know, budget discussions and these sorts of things and the relative roles that each of the services play. But I'm just mindful, and I'm not sure a lot of people realize the continued role that the U.S. Army is playing on the Korean Peninsula in deterring and, and God forbid, defeating aggression on the peninsula. Anything you'd care to say about the the, the role of the U.S. Army well, on the, the peninsula? Well, the role of the U.S. Army uh, on, on the peninsula is just reinforcing our ironclad relationship that we've had with the South Koreans for many, many years. And for those that have had the privilege of visiting South Korea, it's amazing what they've done uh, with their country over those years. And it shows you what ha- the difference when you have freedom and, uh, you know, the, the ability uh, to uh, prosper like they have. And they've had stability for a long time and security for a long time. And so all those come together uh, to, to not only help South Korea, but really help the rest of the world. And I think there's there's a there's a message there uh, for us all, and we work very closely with our Korean partners to make sure that that stays stable and secure. Yeah, a, a major ally, a major trading partner, a major force for good in the region. South Korea is for sure. Great. So we, we've we've touched on the threats there. We've touched a little bit on how the U.S. Army is is uh, playing a role in in addressing those threats and challenges. We really like to kind of zero in now, of course, you know, on, of the U.S. Army, and uh, just you know, can you give a general sense for how busy is the Army these days? Well, I think the the army's extremely busy. If you, you know, if you take a look at uh, the you know the, the size of the army, it's 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 smaller than we were uh, during the peaks of Iraq and, and Afghanistan. And so our troops are very engaged. They're in 140 countries. Um, you know, they've, we've got a good size uh, contingent. Uh, in Eastern Europe, reassuring allies and partners and deterring any further aggression. As you talked about, we're in the Middle East. We're, we're, we're in Korea. We're in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, we have, uh, National Guard and Reserve soldiers doing incredible things across the country. Uh, you name it, uh, we do it. And, uh, I could not be more proud of what our soldiers do every single day. One of one of the terms that uh, that that one hears in 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 Washington that people throw out is readiness, and you know, and this this was uh, my years in the Senate. I was supported a member who was the uh, the senior Republican on the readiness subcommittee of the Senate Armed Service Committee. So this was near and dear to my heart, and of course served in Army G three five seven as a humble major years ago. And and just you know, readiness. When we talk about readiness, with deference to you, there's there's kind of tactical readiness and strategic readiness, and there's also the question of readiness for what. So I'd love to kind of hear your thoughts on the current readiness of the U.S. Army? Yeah, first of all, the, I think the United States Army is ready uh, to fight and win any contingency that the National uh, Command Authority wants to commit us to. And I think we've shown that. You know, I, I, Interesting enough, 
Um, you know, during my, you know, period tenure as chief, you know, we have launched the 82nd Airborne Division four times on a no notice, uh, type mission. And, uh, they have done that in a spectacular, uh, manner responding, um, you know, whether it's in Afghanistan or in the Middle East or in Europe and, uh, pretty amazing. And even when we start moving, you know, armored brigade combat teams, which are not rapid deployable type forces, but because of our strategic readiness, which means we have the capabilities in theater with pre-positioned stocks and logistics, uh, we're able to move them very, very quickly. But readiness is something we work on every single day. Uh, it's extremely important. We, we got to make sure that our, that our troops are, you know, highly trained, disciplined and fit and ready to fight and win as part of the, the, uh, the joint force. And I believe they are that, but we could never take our eye off readiness and we have to fund our forces and make sure they have the resources so they can train and they can continue uh, to be ready for whatever mission that that they have. And, you know, we're going to do a lot of things with our army. We did a lot of stuff with COVID. We respond to uh, natural disasters. Uh, we respond to instances really throughout, you know, the United States and throughout the world. But at the end of the day, uh, United States Army uh, is – responsible being able to fight and win the nation's wars as part of the joint force. And we should never forget that. Yeah, exactly. And when we talk about readiness, uh, you know, but again, uh, it's it, two, <coughs> two primary elements here, equipment and people, right? Do you have the right equipment? Is it modern? Is it well-maintained? Is it appropriate quantities and people, the right quantity of people and 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 the right kind of training? So speaking of people, uh, uh, you know, and soldiers uh, serving our country in uniform, uh, kind of a, a perennial question, if you will, in, in budget discussions here in Washington, including in Congress, is, you know, how big of an army do we need? Um, what is is the size of the army currently, and what's your current view on on the size of army that we need? Well, the, the size of the army right now is is a little under uh, a million soldiers, and you know um, when I take a look at the army, our retention in the army is actually at, at a pretty high level. Uh, some will say an all time high. I'm not willing to you know quite parse it that way, but it, it is the retention in the United States Army is extremely good. Uh, recruiting right now, this last year, uh, coming out of COVID, uh, we, we had some challenges and, uh, you know, what I'm asking all of our soldiers for life and, and those who are interested in, in, in having a, you know, uh, in protecting the nation to inspire other young men and women to serve, not only in the army, but also in the military and also in a, in a lot of our other institutions. You know, what makes this country uh, great is a lot of our institutions. And we need young men and women inspired to serve in those institutions. Oh, it's such an important point. Institutions from my from my seat are, are the, the ways that we uh, maintain uh, the freedom, prosperity, and security we have here in this country. And, and uh, having those institutions supported by Americans and populated by our best citizens is, is the way we keep them healthy, I would say. Yeah, I, th I think so. And, you know, and it's just not, you know, there's a lot of satisfaction in having purpose uh, in, in what you want to do. In the United States Army, you know, you can do anything you want to do. In fact, you can be all you can be. <laughs> there you go. And you may it, see that you, coming no, out pretty soon. Yeah, yeah, well, I've heard that somewhere before. Yeah, you might yeah, see that pretty yeah, soon. I'm not sure where I heard that. Um, if I Just a follow-up on, on the end strength. I think I'd be remiss. You mentioned the overall size of the Army, and, and, which includes active guard and reserve, the different major components of the Army. Um, what's the right active duty size for the U.S. Army? 
Well, it really depends. Uh, I, I, you know, we like to have a bigger army than we have right now. That's why recruiting, uh, is, is extremely important. I, I don't want to put a exact number down because it really depends on, you know, what the strategy, uh, demands. Uh, but, but right now, uh, we are aggressively, uh, recruiting and, and I'd like to see us uh, make our recruiting mission, which is about 65,000 for, for this year coming up. And, and for me, um, that's, thank you for that. Uh, the reason, and you don't have to comment unless you want to, that often, uh, in discussions, uh, you know, that the size of the army is viewed as, as, uh, as a bill payer. And, and, and for, from my perspective, if we don't have an army that's sufficiently large, then one of the first bill payers for that and uh, beyond our, our national security is, is our soldiers and their families, because then they will have insufficient time at home between deployments to recover, to recuperate and to train. And, and, and the parlance for that is, you know, bogged well, but, you know, the time uh, at home between deployments. How, how are we looking on uh, deploy to dwell ratio in terms of that time home between deployments? Are we in a healthy way or are there some units like air defense or aviation where you have some concerns? Yeah, I mean, our, our air defenders are uh, in high demand. So if they're a business, uh, you know, they would be doing extremely well. Um, you know, we have to uh, protect our, our troops abroad and, you know, there is a missile threat out there and there's a, a unmanned aerial system or, you know, lethal drone um, threat out there. And so we want to make sure that we provide um, the forward operating bases and air bases where we have troops with the, the proper protection and our air defenders are doing a great job of doing that. That's great, and and uh, um, thank you for that. You you you've said before many times that uh, I believe. Don't let me misquote you. That uh, the army is going through its most significant kind of transformation, modernization in four decades, which is no small thing to say. Um, and um, and as I you know, I just looking back on on my career, which is not as prestigious as yours, of course, but you know, just a lot of the the helicopters that I flew and things that I did, you know, they were conceived of, designed, and built decades earlier, and so we're you know, we're trying to maintain the readiness of the force right now, which we just discussed. And we're also building the military that our children and grandchildren and uh, husbands, wives you know, in the future are going to use. And, and some of these systems, once we fill them, we're going to use them for 20, 30, 40 years. And so really interested in any, any comments you have about um, how the army is being transformed, multi-domain operations uh, and, and that sort of thing. Yeah. I, I you know, I, I argue that every 40 years uh, the army uh, has to transform itself. It did it in 1940, right before uh, World War II, when General Marshall had my job. It did it in the late 70s, early 80s, when we came in uh, to the Army. And if you take a look at uh, what we've been using for the last 40 years, you know, airland battle was the doctrine. You know, we created uh, new organizations because we couldn't do Desert One. So we have Rangers and we have special mission units and we have the 160th. Um, we set up these things we call combat training centers so we could actually go out and train like Fort Irwin and then, and then, and then Fort Polk and all yeah. those type yeah. things. And, and then we had the big five and you, yeah, you mentioned yeah, the big yeah, five, yeah. you know, and, and for those who are listening, it was, it was the Abrams tank. Yep. It was the Bradley yep. Yep. Uh, fighting vehicle. Yep. It was the Apache helicopter. Yep. It was the Blackhawk helicopter and it was the Patriot missile system. Now we had, you know, we had other, you know, with howitzers and a lot of other things, yes. but those were the big five that we built the uh, army around. And what we've done is we've incrementally improved them over the years. The M1A2 <laughs> SEP version three is not the same. 
tank as right. the M1. The right. Apache right. helicopter that we have today is not the same Apache, exactly. even though it looks a lot alike. Yeah. Very different capabilities. And and the other thing I what was really important, you know, we went to the all volunteer force. Yes. And and that allowed us to have what I call the greatest non commissioned officer force because we're a professional force over the years. We're smaller than we were before. But we have a very professional force. So I find ourselves now in, in 2023 where we have to do the same type of thing. And we are doing that. So we've created new doctrines. So we had airland battle. Yes. And now we have multi-domain operations. We've set up new organizations. We have what we call a multi-domain task force that has long range, the capability for long range precision effects and long range precision fires. Um, we've set up security force assistant brigades to allow us to build the conventional capabilities of our allies and partners. We just stood up a new 11th Airborne Division that's going to be focused on airborne and air assault operations uh, in, in, in the Arctic. Hmm. And then if you take a look at our modernization priorities, we don't have the big five now. We have to, we actually have six, uh, modernization priorities, long range precision fires. Uh, next generation combat vehicle, future vertical lift, the network, air and missile defense, and soldier lethality. And under those um, kind of priorities, we have multiple systems that we are fielding at the speed of relevance. And so we're getting ready to field 24 um, signature systems uh, this year. Now, they'll be in the hands of soldiers. They won't be fully up. There'll still be things we need to do. But this is pretty amazing over a couple of years that we're, we're able to do, uh, do this. And so, you know, we got new doctrine. We got new organizations. We have new how we train and multi-domain operations is new. Uh, we have new weapon systems. And, and, and even on the personnel side, we're moving from an industrial age personnel management system to a 21st century talent management system, which we think we need to do because, quite frankly, we're in a war for talent for young men and women. Yeah. Well, that's a great overview. Thank you. And I'm, I'm, I remember one of the first uh, events we did here with our, 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 our center on military and political power years ago was with then Secretary McCarthy. And, and we talked about the, 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 the night courts and all these efforts to really kind of move this process, uh, at the, as you've said, at the speed of relevance to get these capabilities filled to our soldiers as quickly as possible. And, and it sounds like uh, some of that's starting to bear fruit in, in, oh, absolutely. in really encouraging ways. Absolutely. We're going to see long range precision fires come into the force by the end of this year. And that's hypersonics. That's a mid range capability that will uh, have the capability to sink ships and a precision strike uh, missile that rides on uh, the high Mars system that goes 500 kilometers plus. So there's a lot of systems that are starting to come into uh, the, the hands of our soldiers. And we think it's going to make a fundamental difference for the way we operate. No, that's a great point. And we've done a little research here on the precision strike missile. And that to me is particularly uh, uh, important, it seems, because of uh, its relevance in the Indo-Pacific, arguably. Um, you don't have to comment if you want to, but uh, in Europe and maybe the Middle East. I mean, if you think about uh, what uh, over our existing systems, both in terms of range and lethality, that, that precision strike missile seems to be something that can really help uh, deter aggression. Yeah, we're seeing the future and actually we're seeing it today, but it's just reinforcing how we view the uh, the future is. It, it, the future is going to be about speed, rage, range, and convergence. And so, you know, if you take a look at our weapon systems or even our aircraft, they're going to go much faster and much further because if we, as we look at the Indo-Pacific and we look at other places around the world, speed and range matter. But the real 
secret sauce, if you will, is how quickly you can get those systems uh, where they need to be into the fight, if, if you will. And, and that's going to be done by using uh, deep sensing and then taking advantage of integrated battle command systems that may be augmented by artificial intelligence that can quickly move data from sensors to a command post to the, to the shooters and, 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 and the right shooter, if you will, to get the effects that you need at the speed of relevance. That's great. When I, um, when I think, you know, just from where I sit, when I think about what the joint force in our nation most needs from the Army in, in an Indo-Pacific context and, you know, some of the, the scenarios that people are most thinking about in that uh, area of, uh, of operation, uh, I, I, it seems to me the most important contributions of the Army to the joint force are long-range precision fires, air and missile defense, and logistics, in, in no way demeaning any other capability. But those seem to be three of the things that are that are most vital. Welcome you pushing back on that at all. Um, uh, but uh, in, in that context, uh, um, air and missile defense, I, I am a little bit, you know, and tell me if I'm wrong or I'm worrying unnecessarily. We have enough to worry about. I don't want to invent concerns. I am a little worried about the continued vulnerability of our, 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 our air bases, our ports, and our bases in the first island chain and our ability to protect them from a range of threats, including cruise missiles. And welcome any, any you know, pushback on anything I said there, of course, and, and welcome any updates on the integrated fire protection capabilities and its status. Yeah. Yeah, I, well, I, th- I think first of all, you know, you know, we want to have long-range precision fires, and we, and we certainly have them from the air, yeah. and we have them from the sea. Right. But, but creating you know, these dilemmas but, that we but talked again about. Yeah, from yeah. the ground yeah. just gives yeah. uh, the combatant commander a, a lot more options exactly. on, on where they can do that from, and, and in some ways. You know, by having ground long range precision fires, you just get more options and it does pre- present more dilemmas. The, the air and missile defense is something that, again, we, we have to be able to protect ourselves, yes. you know, while we yeah. are able to uh, go on the offensive. And, and it's really a layered air and missile uh, defense capability. Uh, you know, one of the concerns we certainly have is, and we're spending a lot of effort on is, countering unmanned aerial systems or lethal drones. And, you know, we're seeing those, uh, you know, really across, you know, the, the spectrum. You know, I mean, nowadays anyone can go to a, you know, a local store and pick up a, a drone and maybe uh, do some of the things that we wouldn't want them to do with that. So we we are developing those capabilities to, uh, from violent extremists all the way up to world powers on how to counter unmanned aerial systems. And, and, and so we bring that, that capability in logistics, 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 and, and, and they are even more challenging, uh, you know, in, in the Indo-Pacific. And so we're certainly going to do that. But as you take a look at it, any place you have soldiers or you have key terrain on the ground, you're going to need, you know, uh, either you're going to need the army to protect it or to seize it, yeah. uh, to be able to accomplish your mission. So, uh, I would not, uh, and, you know, say there won't be a, a role for, for the Army or for the Marines in, in a ground uh, capability in the Pacific or our allies and partners who have the same capabilities. Yes. Yeah. And, and just having, uh, just as a student of history, having a little humility about predictions that we make about what a conflict might look like. They tend to <laughs> last for lengths of time that we don't know, and they tend to take on a, a form that we may not predict. And saying it's going to, I think in, the burden of proof would be on anyone to say that a particular conflict would stay in one domain, just, you know, just the maritime domain. It, it's going to be across all domains. I think it, it, that's one of the lessons maybe we're seeing from Ukraine. Well, I think yeah, if you take a look at Ukraine, it's it's a battle of wills. And I think uh, the decisive train uh, in 
uh, Ukraine would have been the capital. And, you know, yes. okay, you know, and it kind of, yes. you know, if someone, you know, and usually, you know, that's a ground type, you know, I mean, it's certainly going to, you know, be a joint force type capability, but you want to protect the capital. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. where, you know, kind of the center of the, of the uh, country is operated. And I think land forces would have a, a key role in doing that. Thank you. No, we've, so we've talked about readiness. We've talked about capability. What can you do? And then there's the idea, as you'll know, capacity. You know, how much do you need of that capability? Interested in any general thoughts you have on capacity. Um, it seems to me that we've we've made assumptions in the past about how much capacity the DOD, DOD and the Army would need based on assumptions that may or may not still be relevant. As I look at uh, China and Russia more aligned uh, than they've been since the 1950s, our, our intelligence community said a couple of years ago, um, we see. Uh, and so I, it seems like we can't safely assume that we would only deal with one of these major combat operations at a time. Any any general thoughts about the capacity we need and the assumptions that undergird, or undergird our war plans and consideration of capacity? Yeah, I, I've, I've been thinking a lot about, um, you, know, you, you say capacity. I, I, I kind of like the look at four factors. I like to look at capabilities. I like to look at capacity. I like to look at competence. And I like to look at will to fight when I'm kind of trying to measure, you know, what we have. And so, um, and this is where really the importance of allies and partners come in. Cause we don't, we don't have enough to, you know, to do for everybody. But when you get, uh, a large amount of countries that share, uh, the same values and they, they say, they share the same philosophy that maybe peace through strength and they're willing to invest in their militaries at the appropriate rate. So they have a certain level of capacity or capabilities and competence in their weapon system. And I would argue, you know, if you have the right weapon system, if you have the right amount, your soldiers are, are trained in those systems, you'll have a much greater will to fight. And when you bring that together, and you bring together as a team and then you, you get into, as you know, the national defense strategy talk about an integrated deterrence strategy where it's not just military. It's also economic. And a lot of countries, are, you know, uh, when you're dealing with a country are affected by sanctions and some of those other means. And so, you know, that, that all comes into effect with the diplomacy and, and information. And, 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 and it's, it's through, um, those, uh, means I think you get the strength uh, and, and and the ability to preserve the peace in these type areas. Yeah, well said. Will to fight. When these days, when I hear will to fight, I, I immediately think of Ukraine, <laughs> right? I mean, we That's have right. a, we That's have right. a partner. I, I'm going to use the term, and I'm going to do it proudly you know, on the frontier of freedom. They're literally standing on the frontier of freedom, and they've demonstrated a will to fight. Absolutely. And um, and and you know, you don't have to comment if you want to, but you know, I, I think we neglect supporting an ally like that, or excuse me, a partner like that at our own peril. They've demonstrated a willingness to defend with their lives, common interests, and common values, and and I think that's something to be nurtured and supported myself. Uh, and then you said willingness to invest. I mean, we see our, our rock solid Japanese allies who are looking at increasing their defense spending. And when I think about creating those dilemmas to deter potential aggression in the first island chain, seems like the more we can do uh, with Japan and Australia and the Philippines and, and Taiwan, it, it would be helpful to that. Yeah, I think, you know, when you, when you take a look at investing in defense, it's investing in an insurance policy. And, you know, people don't want to necessarily invest in insurance policy. They don't think they need, but I think much of the world has taken a look at what happened in Ukraine and many of our allies and partners in Europe have taken a look and they said, Hey, we, we, we need 
go ahead and invest in our fence because, you know, we need to have that capability. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, you know, I've seen graphs in the past about how, you know, after our conflicts, we do the, the big piece of dividend, we cut defense spending, we cut the size of our military, uh, maybe thinking that, Hey, you know, we finally, uh, we finally have world peace, but gosh darn it, you know, we're, we're being reminded in a horrible way at the cost of, of Ukrainians that, uh, that, um, you know, large scale invasions and unprovoked aggression is not relegated to the black and white newsreels of the first half the 20th century and that we, we can't take what we have for granted. Just some commentary from me. Um, I, before we run out of time, uh, General, I'm really eager to hear your thoughts on kind of the, you know, one of the main job, one of your main jobs, as I understand it, is is being, you know, the force provider. And, and to do that, of course, almost almost all the weapons that our, our soldiers wield are produced in the private sector. And, uh, and so I'm interested in your assessment of the health of our industrial base, particularly when it comes to munitions. Well, we have a a, a very uh, good industrial base when it comes to producing top-notch weapon systems and ammunition. And I think, you know, as we take a look at what's happening in Ukraine, when it comes to usage rates and everything else, it's just one of those type things that I think we're we're all looking at. And you know, listen, we we may need to uh, increase our organic industrial base and just make sure that we can produce. Uh, the, the amount of ammunition, the weapon systems that we could, uh, that we would require in a large scale combat operation. Yeah, no, uh, so well said. Uh, my my colleague, uh, Rear Admiral Retired Mark Montgomery, and I published on this several months ago, and, and we called it, you know, with deference to you, uh, a munitions production capacity crisis, where when we turned our industry as hardworking and as great as they are, we just didn't have the surge capacity that we needed to produce enough to simultaneously arm Ukraine, support this 40-year modernization that we're doing with our own forces, arm Taiwan, and strengthen our posture in the Indo-Pacific. And it seems to me as some, you know, work these issues on the Hill for a long time, that often we would just uh, buy enough to kind of keep factories open at the minimal sustainable rate. And so that when we turn to them, having done that for many years, the surge capacity is not there. And my understanding is that the army is really getting after this where we're trying to increase, uh, I I saw Doug Bush talking about this the other day, increase the production capacity of our 155s, looking at javelins and stingers and other things. No, I, yeah, and, um, um, Doug Bush and who's our uh, acquisition executive and, and and his team are doing some great work along with the, you know under the, the the guidance of the Deputy Secretary of Defense that you know the whole um, industrial base is is moving out recognizing uh, you know to get after some of these things we need and I you know one thing about you know, when, when the United States wants to do something, we can do it and they will do it well. Yeah. Yeah. Well said. And I was really happy for my part to see in, in the most recent National Defense Authorization Act, the authorization of multi-year contracting to get after something. Something in the past has been kind of reserved for, you know, Navy programs, you know, aircraft carriers and that sort. So hopefully that will help create incentives and in industry for research and development and capacity, building capacity. But, you know, we can't just authorize it. Speaking to my, you know, for my part, to the friends on Capitol, we have to appropriate as well. And that we need not just the author but the money behind that. In our remaining moments, would love to just hear any general comments that you have or thoughts you have on forward position military posture. You know, um, it seems to me, in my opinion, that uh, there's real value in forward positioning uh, U.S. military forces in, in, for a whole variety of reasons. But I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, there's, there's certainly value uh, in having our, our, our soldiers and in our units present uh, overseas, and you know, as we as we call it, forward 
forced posture, there's multiple ways of, of getting there. You know, some is having the equipment there, which has a lot of value because we can quickly move the troops. The troops are easy to move. The equipment, especially the heavy equipment, uh, takes longer. Uh, in some cases, we want our families there. And in some cases, we don't want our families care. So it, it makes sense to uh, rotate our units. And so what we're trying to do is find that that sweet spot where we have the right amount of um you know, soldiers and families that are actually uh, stationed there. And then we have the right amount of rotational forces. And then we have the right amount of equipment overseas. And then we do the right amount of exercises where soldiers come over for a short period of times. And we try to do this balancing, you know, certainly what the countries want that, that are there, but also balancing, as you talked about, the deployment to well time for our soldiers uh, and, and families. No, that's a great point. The, finding the right mix between permanently stationed forces, rotational forces, pre-positioned stocks that allows us to get to a, a conflict zone more quickly and fall in on the equipment exercises and that sort of thing. But just the deterrent effect of having uh, American soldiers standing here saying, don't even think about it because we're here. And, and to me, this also comes back in part to the, the assumptions question is it seems to me in the past that, um, a lot of people aren't not doing this for a living like you do. Maybe think that we're still in the 199, you know, 1991 Gulf War environment where we can take as long as we want sending forces to a place, build up large main operating bases and commence military operations whenever we want. When I think about a potential scenario in the Indo Pacific, uh, I'm not at all certain that we're going to be able to get forces there the way we might want to. And that pushes me back to the importance of preposition forces. I don't know if you don't want to push back on any of that or agree. No, with I, I think, again, I think force posture is absolutely key. And, you know, the point uh, that, you know, some that don't have a chance to travel may not quite understand, which I certainly did, especially uh, had a chance to travel to uh, some of the countries that uh, very close to what was happening in Ukraine, uh, in Lithuania, in Latvia, in Estonia, Finland, Sweden, Norway, uh, Germany, um, Poland, and Romania. And uh, it's amazing what they think of American troops uh, on their soldiers. You know, it used to be that old cliche that wherever American soldiers went, Freedom followed. I would say wherever American soldiers go, freedom stays. And that's what they believe when our soldiers are there side by side with their troops. Uh, well said. They're at the invitation of the respective governments. And whenever I hear a comment like that, I think of World War II. And, you know, we, we, we went and helped liberate a continent from Nazi uh, Germany. Uh, and, uh, you know, our primary impulse was to want to go home. <laughs> and a lot of us. And, uh, and and the only really territory that we asked for was a place to bury our dead in some of the cemeteries there. So that's well, so, you know, we put the 101st Airborne Division back into yeah, uh, right. Europe for the first right. time at the since invitation World War of the host at the invitation yeah, of, and yeah. they would like them to stay. If they're not yeah. no, but, they, <laughs> they, they, you know, but we have a great yeah. country. We like yeah. to come home. Yeah, exactly. There's worse things than that, but for sure. Well, uh, excellent. Is there anything that um, you think Americans need to know about the Army? Anything you uh, that folks working, uh, hardworking folks in Congress might need to hear? Any, any kind of closing comments? You yeah, have? What, what I would say is. Um, you know, for, for those out there is inspire young men and women to serve and, and, and not just in the military or the army, but in the country. We have the world's greatest country. And one thing I've been privileged, you know, serving this country for over 42 years is I get to travel around the world and we are so blessed to live in this country. And this country needs to be protected. And we need young men and women to raise their right hand to follow those who are doing it and have done it so well for, you know, the last, you know, 247 years. And so, you know, consider uh, serving, 
uh, take advantage of uh, what we have to offer. And like I said a little before, is you can be all you can be. Well, exactly. Well, Jeremy McConville, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I hope you have too. And, and, and again, sincerely, I just want to thank you and your family for your decades of distinguished service and sacrifice for our country. I want to thank the soldiers that you lead. And I want to thank the listeners for joining us here on Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts. You can subscribe to all FDD's products. You can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.